Well, good morning. Glad to be back. Thanks to, for everyone who filled in for me the last couple of weeks. And uh, I think I'm about 90, 95%. So we'll see if the voice holds up today. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us, even when we're reminded of our frailties and uh, we're reminded that we are dependent upon you at all times for all things and that you are gracious to provide for us above and beyond all that we can ask or think. Thank you now for the opportunity to gather as your people to study and think and to apply the gospel to our lives and the lives of our children. We pray, Lord, that you grant us strength and encouragement, wisdom, and uh, enthusiasm for this task. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we'll probably have three or four more lessons on child training and probably conclude with a Q&A session uh, at the end. Today I want to talk about a subject we've talked about a number of times, but like every other subject, it, it's worth, worth revisiting, making sure we're thinking through it, sometimes just reminding ourselves of why we're going to all the trouble we're going to to do the things we're doing. I presume that most, in fact, I would assume that all of you are persuaded of the absolute necessity of Christian education. Uh, most of you have been fully engaged in the process, either through homeschooling or online uh, studies or Christian day schools. And so I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the various intramural debates over things like curriculum and methods and uh, the pros and cons of these various things. That's, that's a good thing. Uh, the amount of materials and training uh, is enormous, and the quality of the materials, thankfully, is constantly improving. We began homeschooling with Aaron when uh, he was, you know, like four years old. And uh, that was a long time ago, and there wasn't a whole lot available. And, uh, but we're thankful to see how God has blessed the re revitalization of the Christian education movement in this country. In fact, we've been at it long enough now that we're, uh, we've had a, a more than one cycle of students go from kindergarten all the way through that we've also been at it long enough to see some of our failures, to see areas that need to be rethought and, uh, and reconsidered. That's the nature of, of those kinds of things. Marinelle and I, as I said, began homeschooling so about 35 years or more ago. And, uh, and so now we're getting to watch our grandchildren uh, go to Christian schools and be educated in homeschooling and that kind of thing. I've been the founding board chairman of two classical Christian schools, lectured at a numerous education conferences, uh, this isn't the first time I've taught a series, in the past taught a whole series on Christian education, the necessity of a Christian education, done that more than once. So what can I say to you that isn't old news? And we might ask the question, how are we doing after 35 years? Where are the gaps? Where does our focus need to be now? There is certainly much to commend. Nevertheless, there's much left to do. And the, the temptation with anything, particularly a task like Christian education, that's a daily task, 
the whole time we have our children, not just in regard to schooling, but their entire upbringing is an education. It's easy to grow weary in well-doing. It's easy to get in a rut. It's easy to get uh, to forget why we're doing what we're doing. One thing I think that's critical is that we need to remember that education <clears throat> is far more than a good curriculum or even a good organization. If you've been at this very long, you know that the ideals and the realities are often far apart. We have this kind of you know, big vision of what it is we're trying to do, but then on a Tuesday uh, when we've told uh, our students to sit down and do their homework or um, stop you know, getting out of their seat or stop talking and all the little details that go on day in and day out, we can lose sight of that. Um, there are frustrations and dis- disappointments that can certainly be overwhelming at times. But if our goals are unclear, then it is possible that our labor could be at least partly in vain. Jesus asks, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And it's entirely possible we can go through the whole process of a Christian education and miss the point. What kind of children does God want? That's the question. What would his report card say about our children? And so let's back up and think about Christian education philosophically, uh, biblically, and then practically. Uh, in the case of any education, and remember, an, an education of children is inevitable. It might be a really poor education. It might be a great education. Uh, but everybody is engaged. Children are always being educated by someone all the time, somewhere. Every, uh, someone's religion, someone's view of God, someone's view of man, someone's view of the child, someone's view of sin and uh, all those things, is in control. Every religion vies for power and control of our culture, and so therefore everyone has a religion, whether they name it or don't name it. One of the most useful tools, though, in the quest for power over the lives of men is found in our educational systems. Kenneth Galbraith regards it as the successor to land and capital as the most important determinant of who controls whom. George Orwell observed in his novel 1984, who controls the past, controls the future, who controls the present, controls the past. Understanding that whoever has the power over mind, over the mind and the power over has the power over culture, Orwell had one of his characters declare this, The party is not interested in the overt act. The thought is all we care about. We do not merely destroy our enemies. We change them. Author Herbert Schlossberg wrote this in his, uh, one of the, one of the seminal books for me in the, over the last many years is a book called Idols for Destruction. And he said this, education is a series of religious acts partly because the power of assumption is so great. Assumptions are even more powerful than assertions because they bypass a person's critical faculty and thereby create prejudice. 
Government education assumes God to be irrelevant to the educational process when in fact the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Such false assumptions by the government schools can then be combined with arguments that prove the truth of what is false. The false assumptions are particularly beguiling because they appeal to one of our worst instincts, the desire to be fashionable or at least to avoid being associated with the unfashionable or the unpopular. And you think about what a great influence that is on all of us, but especially our kids, the desire to be cool, the desire to be accepted, the desire to be viewed a certain way. That's, that really drives a great deal of our behavior. So what is the biblical goal of the education of our children? Well, what is God's purpose? His purpose is to fill the earth with godly people, not just educated people, not just smart people, not just people who are technically proficient, but godly people. And thus, this must be our goal in educating our children. Malachi 2.15, but did he not make them, that is, husband and wife, one, having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring, therefore take heed to your spirit. Education provides the tools, and those tools will be in the hands of someone who can use them for good purposes or bad purposes. Uh, some, of the, some of the most educated people in the world have done some of the greatest damage to the world. So you see, education in itself is not enough. It's never enough. In fact, it could be just the opposite. And so when it's used for bad purposes, it's, it's like technology. You know, let's take a computer. Is a computer good or evil? It's a tool. It could be used for good or it could be used for evil. And likewise, education. Um, good tools must be in the hands of good men and good women. Good tools in the hands of those who don't serve Christ are dangerous. Indeed, their spiritual condition and the content of their character, uh, their, excuse me, the student's spiritual condition and the content of their character is far more essential than a high GPA. We put a, a lot of emphasis on good grades, and, and there, there is a proper place for that. We want people to work hard and do the best they can and achieve as much as they can. But again, it's entirely possible to do that and be focused on that to the exclusion of the character of the person who has the GPA. The Proverbs set up a clear contrast between the wise and the foolish. Um, if you, so the Bible starts with the assumption that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Have you ever known any smart fools? Yeah, I know some people are really smart and really foolish. And I know some people that might not technically be smart, meaning you know, maybe their score on their uh, you know, standardized test are not all that high, but they're really wise because they're full of grace and full of truth and they love God and they fear God and they treat others in, in that regard. And that has to be the priority. Um, I have known, again, some very smart fools, and I've known many who struggled academically, but who have shown themselves to be very, very wise. 
True wisdom is the biblical goal of education, and biblical wisdom has certain characteristics that are essential. It has ethical content that is rooted in the truth and the authority of God's Word. Biblical wisdom is humble, not arrogant, which in turn is gracious and grateful. And biblical wisdom manifests the fruit of the Spirit. At the end of the day, if your family is not filled with a good bit of joy, laughter, kindness, and respect, then the education you're providing is insufficient and flawed. I want to say that again. If at the end of the day or the week, your family isn't filled with a good bit of joy, laughter, kindness, and respect, then the education you're providing is insufficient and flawed. Now, in the parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus described the various soils the seed fell upon. His description of the good ground, uh, I remember when I read this in the Gospel of Mark and and Luke, uh, it it surprised me once because it kind of went against my, what I had assumed about children and about people. Uh, he says this, but the, but the ones, that is the seed that fell on the good ground, are those who having heard the word with a noble and good heart, kept it and bear fruit with patience. So you got the seed that's being sown, the word of God. And then Jesus is describing the various kinds of hearts that that seed fell on. And when he describes the seed that ended up bearing much fruit, he describes the hearts of those that the Word of God came to as noble and good. Elevated, lifted up, noble, and good. And uh, where did these noble and good hearts come from? And I would like to contend that by and large... I think, in the context of who Jesus is speaking to, that is covenant people, they were the hearts that were cultivated, the hearts that were cultivated by godly parents. Children that love God. Because they see their parents loving God. Remember, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall diligently teach your children to do the same thing. Teach them to do what? To love God. That's a good and noble heart. Then when the Word of God comes to that heart, people who love God want to hear from God. They want to obey God. They want to follow God. There's an openness there to receive that Word and then have it bear fruit. So we should remember that in regard to cultural transmission, which is our job, parents represent God. As Christian parents, you have handed your children over to Jesus in baptism and handed them, and He has handed them back to you to raise them, to raise them for Him. You, parents, are Christ's representatives to your children. From you, they will receive an education about justice and mercy, law and love, truth and beauty, loyalty and sacrifice, and everything else that's important in life. They're going to learn something from you about that. Either directly or just by observing. 
An education that is void of these things is of little value. God is or should be the environment of your child, constant and total. Remember the assumptions of the public school system is God doesn't exist, or he's, at best he's irrelevant to education. Your assumption is the exact opposite, that he is relevant all the time. He is present all the time. He is what the education is all about. Not, he's not a footnote. Uh, he's not just chapel on the side. He is at the center of every subject that we teach and study and learn about. As the church equips the saints for service, so too parents as, and their agents, which could be school teachers, who are outposts of the church must equip their children for service where? In the kingdom of God. They are citizens of the kingdom of God. They are members of the body of Christ. I'm not going to take the time to chase this rabbit right now, but I also think that's why infant baptism is very critical and, and biblical the idea that our children are included in the covenant. They're not out there and us crossing our fingers hoping they come in. They are part of the kingdom of God. They are part of the body of Christ. And therefore we educate them in that context. A comprehensive and unified Christian view and way of life is therefore what God requires of parents and their agents. Parents are responsible for the kind of worldview their children are taught how they look at the world, how they think about a problem, how they think about prayer and worship, how they think about conflict and repentance and forgiveness, how they think about service, all of those things and much more. And for the kind of instruction they receive in specific subjects. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, then thou shalt have good success. It's not enough to believe that the education of the home and the school must be Christian. It's one thing to have a general belief about how things should be, but it's another matter altogether to be able to articulate that belief and be able to persuade others of its necessity as well. Your calling as parents is to inculcate, that is to internalize in your children affection for the things of God. Do they love the Word of God? Do they love the church of God? Do they love the people of God? Do they love the kingdom? That's the goal of your educating your children. And so... um, In order to do that, your heart must first be turned toward them, and in turn, their hearts will be inclined toward you. So I think there's an aspect that's critical here of mutual respect. Well, I think parents often understand the idea that children must be taught to show respect to parents and to others, but I want to emphasize that the best way you teach your children to show respect is for them to see you showing respect, including showing them respect. Now, that looks a bit different. The, the, the respect parents show children that is not identical to the respect children show parents because of those different positions they occupy, of superior and inferior. 
But as superiors, we have an obligation to show respect to those who are under our care, which means we love them. We're considerate of their frame. We're understanding. We don't just crush them. And, and I see this sometimes in our circles where uh, a rigorous, principled mom or dad who thinks that they're doing the work of God end up crushing their children. Now they might, they might at least for a little while, have well-behaved children who can all stand in a row and, and uh, you know, not wiggle during church. Uh, but that's not the goal. The goal is affection for God. And, and it involves some of those other disciplines, but even those disciplines are there to serve this greater cause. And so, uh, it's no checkbox system that can possibly produce the kind of children God calls us to educate. Now, I hope that uh, more and more Christians are realizing that there is, in fact, no neutral ground in education or anywhere else. Now, I think we, most of us would nod our heads in agreement with that, but most of us also really uh, practically don't implement that in the way we teach or think about even our own lives. There is no neutral ground. Um, nothing can be taught apart from some religious presupposition. So somebody says, well, we, we don't even mention religion at, at our school or in our class. Well, that, that is your religion. You just mentioned it. That is what you believe. That's what you believe about God. You believe he's irrelevant to this subject. So you are teaching your religion. It's a false one, but you are teaching it. It's inescapable. Certainly some parents homeschool or place their children in Christian schools in hopes of avoiding drugs, sex, violence, disease, etc., but the purpose of Christian education is not to facilitate flight from the surface symptoms, but to counteract the source of that infection. I'm not going to take the time right now. I may do it in a later lesson to expand on this, but one of the great dangers of both homeschooling and Christian education are false assumptions and presumptions on the part of parents that while we have our kids at home, all those things can't happen at our house. Wrong or we have our kids in a Christian school, we've got those bases covered. Wrong. And that presumption by itself, that false presumption, can kill you and can kill your children. And it can be very, very devastating. And so it's really important to pay attention here and not be presumptuous and assume that because we've done a few things right, that we've done everything that we need to do. We have to remain vigilant in all of this. Only an education that is self-consciously Christian and full-orbed is equipped to provide a moral and academically competent education for our children. And while we, we must provide the hothouse that prepares students for the harsh warfare of a world that is hostile toward God, you've heard me say this before, but it's an important statement. Ignorance and innocence are not the same thing. Sometimes we think, well, if we just don't let our children ever hear about that or know about that, we'll keep them isolated and, and, and take them out of the world in that way. That will be the way to protect them. But that's not the biblical way. The biblical way is to prepare them for life in this world, to equip them, age appropriate certainly, but the goal is to produce adults, adult soldiers for Jesus Christ who are ready to go out and conquer 
and engage this world, not have to go live in a hut in the woods to make sure they never bump into the world. That's another danger that sometimes shows up in our circles. We are not protecting our children in the long run by shielding them completely from the world. God has called us to teach them how to live in this world in this century. Schools are essential, whether they're home schools or day schools, are essential to the transmission of a culture. A worldview is exactly what a child is given in school. And so we must understand the strategic importance of the current educational establishment in the repaganization of our culture. If America has moved away from its Christian foundations, there's a reason for that. That's not an accident. It is very self-conscious. And so, if we're to have a truly Christian culture, it's essential that we have a self-consciously Christian education at every level and in every field of study. Producing godly men and women that adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, this is an extension of the work of the church through our families. Families, in turn, educate children for Christ, nurture in the Lord, and Christian nurture is at the heart of true Christian education. Um, In fact, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the close of the Old Testament, remember, uh, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, which is John the Baptist, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So if if fathers' hearts aren't turned toward children and children's hearts aren't turned toward fathers, the result is the culture, the broader culture, the earth, is cursed. So that's what's at stake. We seek to win the heart of the child And we only do that when our hearts are directed toward them. If you don't have a heart for your child or your students, then you cannot be, uh, we can't, there cannot be a Christian culture. We love them in spite of themselves. I remember having taught some teacher training in the past and pointing out, I want teachers who love their subjects. But I've seen teachers who love their subjects that don't love their students. I want teachers that love their students and love their subjects and know their subjects and are passionate about their subjects and can transmit that passion to those students because they love those students. But I don't want a teacher who just loves, thinks everybody's a sweetie pie but is not competent as a teacher. And I don't want everybody, somebody who just absolutely loves their subject and, and, and views the students as a nuisance. They would really like teaching if it wasn't for students. Um, so it's a, a great teacher is someone who takes those two things together, and God uses that in mighty ways. Most of you probably remember teachers you've had like that who, who brought both of those things to the table and what an influence uh, that had on you. So our... Uh, uh, the goal of our instruction is to help them to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. 
Uh, Our call is to shape the ideal man who would be able to take his place in the ideal culture. Moreover, the goal of our education is to bring that culture about. We are here to accomplish nothing less than the enculturation of the future citizen. So then, education is not just a bound curriculum. Uh, It is enculturation, every aspect of enculturation. And so the Bible tells us to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the many years that are devoted to the formal education of a child greatly impact the direction and thoughts of our children. Now sometimes, if if your children are grown and you begin to see, thankfully, sometimes some of those lessons that you think they weren't learning when they were 14, uh, at 24 or 34, you realize, yeah, they were listening. It took a while for it to soak in or for some situation in life to develop so that they reached back and drew upon that. So everything doesn't happen. You don't teach it on Tuesday and by Thursday they've got it, they're nailing it. It's a process and it takes time and it takes prayer. Don't forget to pray for your children that this education will be effectual for them. Um, And so parents desire their children's success intellectually, socially, and physically, but most important for the Christian parent is the child's understanding and application of the Christian faith. Providing Christian education for our children, of course, is costly, but it is not nearly as costly as the alternative. Problems in in modern American society and education are frightening to parents, and Christians shouldn't be surprised by those problems since they are the expected result of a culture that has rejected God. But Christians should not panic or retreat. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but what did he say? Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, that would be a good passage to memorize because when those discouragements come, Jesus says, I know, there's a lot of tribulation. Be of good cheer. You have me. I have overcome the world. It is with assurance of Christ's victory that we labor every day. Education is to be conducted in light of God's revelation of himself in the scriptures and in recognition that all truth is God's truth. We seek to raise high standards for both Christian character and academic achievement, We're committed to biblical worldview in all areas of life, and therefore we want to teach our children how God's Word and world relates to every subject. Your commitment to provide the spiritual and academic benefits of a Christian education will affect your children and students for the world and for eternity. Furthermore, it will affect the future of our civilization. So Christian education is not simply a luxury when we consider our responsibilities toward God. Children from Christian homes must learn to think God's thoughts after him and to view all facts as God-created and God-controlled facts. The sacrifices that are made will be blessed by God.
So I've mentioned this before, but I want to say again, you are always teaching your children, and your children are always learning. It's not just during school hours. It's 24-7. There are no genuinely private acts. We are always connected to the community, and our attitudes, our words, behavior constantly impact others, and indeed the entire educational culture. That is a critical lesson for our children to learn. Um, one other comment I've uh, just emphasized. Remember, a lot of what you're do, over, trying to overcome with children is because they're sinners like you is selfishness. I don't want to is some of their favorite words or at least attitudes. I don't like that. I don't want to. Okay? Your job is to teach them to like it and to want to, which means you may have to make them do some things they don't want to and try some things they don't like. You don't like what you don't know. And so that holy insistence with our children, this is, no, you're going to do it. No, you're going to participate. No, you're going to get happy about it. No, go back and redo that. That's not good enough. You can do better than that. There will be tears. But joy comes in the morning. Without the tears, they'll just... If you don't have tears now, you'll have a lot of them later. You can, have, you can pay me now or pay me later. You can get the, some, some tears now and some big joys later, or you can get some little joys today and some big tears later. That's the way it works. And so, uh, we're going to be talking about this today in Ephesians, where Paul going to tell us to be imitators of God. Uh, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Uh, so th there's this process of imitation. When I talk about your children are always learning and you're always teaching, a familial, familial approach to education is therefore essential. So if you're relying, for example, on the school to give your children what you're not giving them at home, you will be disappointed. This means that you and your students love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This means you love your students. It means you insist that your students uh, love you and love the others around them. It means love is at the core of a genuine education. What's the goal? Loving communion. That's why we're here on earth. To glorify God. How? By, having, by living in loving communion with Him and with one another. Love is demonstrated first by obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Rebellion is the opposite of love. It's selfish. It says, I don't want to be in communion. I want what I want for me right now at everybody else's expense. That's the nature of sin. Love is doing, again, for someone what they need, not necessarily what they want. The, the overly indulged do not know how to honor and respect. Their attitude is, you owe me. The nurtured and disciplined know how to deny themselves and how to give to others. Give, the Bible says, and it'll be given to you. That's the order in which that takes place. So what is of first importance? The most important lesson, I think I started this series with this, so I'm going to come back and hit it again. The most important lesson a child can learn is the lesson of respect. That's the one thing God says to children. Honor your father and your mother. And, therefore, and by extension, because your children 
pretty much everyone else. In fact, honor and respect are, their own, are the only rules. All other rules are sub-rules of that rule. Ephesians 6, 1 and 3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and you may live long on the earth. So um, we've talked about this before. Respect is going to be shown, of course, with attitudes, words, and behavior. Parents, you should insist that your children always show that toward anyone else that you've uh, lent them to to help with instruction. Teachers, administrators, pastors, uh, that you teach them to show that respect at all times. It doesn't mean that all those people are always right. There are times when we need to sit down and have a conversation and solve a problem, but showing respect is critical. So, let me summarize with this. God is our educational environment. In Him, we live and move and have our being. He is imminent. That is, He is present in all of His fullness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Therefore, cultivating an awareness of his presence in our children is essential. How do you do that? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray with them? Do you talk about God when you rise up, when you lie down, when you, you know, everywhere you go, when you're riding in the car? So that that's their environment? That's just how they think. That's how they live. That's what they breathe. Through, so again, through prayer, through free interjection of, uh, of God and his thought into lessons and conversations, through questions that necessitate the invocation of God and his thought, because remember, their thoughts are not naturally his thoughts. Belief and unbelief are mutually exclusive. Neither allows any room for the other. I want to give two Cornelius Van Til quotes here. He says, all of us must stand together as one man, in this day, when boundaries between the believer and the unbeliever are so generally wiped away, we should seek to mark those boundaries anew and mark them well. We should seek to mark those boundaries not with chalk that disappears at the first rainstorm that comes, but we should try to mark these boundaries with indelible ink on the hearts of those who believe. Again, he says, and anyone who comes to grips with, this, with it at all will sense the impossibility of thinking of Christian education as being 90 or 60 or 30 or 10% like other education. The only difference being that Christian education adds certain elements or emphasizes certain elements that secular education neglects. When viewed from this absolute standpoint, Christian education is not even a fraction of 1% like public education. The different conceptions of God that underlie the two, two theories cover every point on the whole front and cover them before and behind, without and within. Amen. Unfortunately, the community has often failed, but community education is a community affair. As a result, we no longer trust one another. We've often retreated to try to do it our own way. But that needs to change, and I think it is in many ways. Some have viewed the Christian school or homeschool as a place to retreat from a corrupt culture and a secular education, but we again need to view it, I think, more as a boot camp for preparing our kids 
to do this great work we've been called to. And the church is the hub of our community. Our families and the education of our children need to be lived out in the context of the covenant community of God's people. I'm not saying that the schools should be governed directly by the church, but neither should they be disconnected. While we might recognize the fact that our secular culture and schools are falling apart, yet there is apparently little recognition that our evangelical culture has similar problems. The modern churches often don't have a distinctive worldview either. It has no epistemological center. So... Let me close because we're out of time with, uh, I'm going to close with a quote from Abraham Kuyper. Um, As Christians, we cannot possibly reach a world that we have no contact with. So in other words, we're not retreating. He, He says this, far more precious to us than even the development of human life is the crown which ennobles it. And this noble crown of life for you and me rests in the Christian name. The crown is our common heritage. It was not from Greece or Rome that the regeneration of human life came forth. That that mighty metamorphosis dates from Bethlehem and Golgotha. But in deadly opposition to this Christian element, against the very Christian name and against its salutary influence in every sphere of life, the storm of modernism has now arisen with violent intensity. And we could add to that postmodernism. There is no doubt then that Christianity is imperiled by great and serious dangers. The two life systems are wrestling with one another in mortal combat. If the battle is to be fought with honor and with a hope of victory, then principle must be arrayed against principle then it must be felt that in modernism, the vast energy of an all-embracing life system assails us. Then also it must be understood that we have to take our stand in a life system of equally comprehensive and far-reaching power. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the instruction you give us about how to instruct our children Lord, you know that many of us have battled in this area, but also have grown weary and even grow weary day in and day out from this arduous task. So I pray you would indeed fill us with that reminder that you have overcome the world and that our victory is in Jesus Christ and that you will bless the faithful labors of your people and that you will take these labors, these sacrifices, the money spent, the time spent, the tears shed, and use them, Father, to bring forth great fruit in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.